Let's ask God to help us with his word. Uh, Gracious God, our Father, uh, please shine the light of your gospel into our hearts and open our eyes so that we will see Jesus' glory and trust him. And help me to speak your word clearly and truthfully. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, During the week I was thinking about this passage and about how hard it is to imagine what it would be like to be blind. So, uh, you know, in the interest of being well prepared for you, I resolved to give blindness a try and to drive to staff meeting along Grimshaw Street, down the Greensboro Bypass and up the ring road with my eyes shut. You don't believe that, do you? Obviously, because I'm still here. Being blind totally in the dark, unable to orient yourself to the world around you, is disabling and dangerous. And I mean, if in reality I'd suddenly lost my sight, well, I'd do what you do. I'd stay put and call for help. Well, what if we all suddenly, say, lost the sight of the sun? If we were all plunged into darkness, it would be terrible, wouldn't it? Confusion would replace confidence Fear would take the place of peace and cold death would extend over all. To be totally in the dark is to know uncertainty, misery and death. To be in the light is life, safety and joy. Light is good. Seeing the light, not being blind, living in the light, not being in the dark is good. Light so much better than darkness. So when Jesus says he comes as light into the world, why don't all embrace him? And if all don't, if some are still in the darkness, does that contradict Jesus' claim to be the light of the world or does it mean that God has failed in his purpose in sending Jesus to us as the light of the world? In John chapter 9 we see that while some embrace the light, not all do. There's the man born blind who moves from one not seeing to one who sees, more who moves from sight to insight about Jesus. And then there are the Pharisees who move from seeing to blindness, or better, from a refusal to see to deadly darkness. And we hear what Jesus says of these differing responses in relation to the purpose of God in sending him into the world. So let's pick up the story in verse 1. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Uh, The disciples are asking Jesus a theological question and we can sometimes think the same way, can't we? Something bad has happened to this or that person here, to the blind man and his family and therefore we think they must have done something wrong. Now there's a seed of truth in that too, isn't it? While not all or even most sickness or misfortune is due to the sufferer's sin, we know that there are some cases where their illness does follow on their actions. The user of amphetamines who develops schizophrenia or the drunk driver who wraps his car around a tree and becomes a paraplegic. And sometimes the parent's actions can affect the unborn baby. The children of heroin addicts have a really tough time. The rabbis of Jesus' day even believed that babies could sin in the womb and be punished for it. 
And so the disciples' inclusion of the man himself who sinned, this man or his parents, is not evidence of a belief in reincarnation. It just shows that they are aware of contemporary opinion. So, who sinned? To this theologically speculative question, Jesus gives a surprising answer. It wasn't this man who sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. It's surprising because in this individual case, Jesus is certain about the lack of sin as a cause. There's no karma here. And it's surprising because Jesus is also certain about the purpose of this sickness. It's happened so that the works of God might be displayed in his life. It's hard enough for us to know the purpose of any event in our own lives, but Jesus says he knows the purpose of this blindness in the life of this stranger for certain. Now how? How can he say that with confidence? Well, it's because he is the one sent from God who does the work of God. And now is the time for doing that work. He'll display the work of God in this blind man's life. Now there's a hint here that God may have a purpose for the hard things in our lives which can become clear only much later, long after we've asked all the why questions at the time of God's choosing. But that's just a hint worth reflecting on, but it's left undeveloped here. Rather, Jesus repeats his claim that he is the light of the world, the one who drives out the darkness and brings life and joy. And having said that, he backs up his claim with an extraordinary act. He initiates contact with the blind man, a man living in darkness. And before the blind man can even think to ask for help, Jesus has smeared a muddy paste over his eyes and told him to go to Siloam and wash it off. Uh, there's some evidence that spit was used in healing procedures in some of the surrounding cultures, although the rabbis generally frowned on it because it had suggestions of magic. But we're not sure why Jesus uses spit here, but one thing we do know for certain, <laughs> having a mud paste smeared all over your eyes is a very good reason to go and wash. The initiative, you see, is all of Jesus. There's not a mention of this man's faith. With the mud, Jesus is making it easy for the blind man to do what he's told, making certain that he'll do it. And he does. And he comes back seeing. The power that Jesus shows here is extraordinary power. This man who was blind from birth came back seeing straight away. It's so extraordinary, such a big and unexpected change that at first, verses 8 and 9, his neighbours were unsure it was him. Oh, it's him. Oh, no, no, it's like him. Oh, no. But the blind man has no doubt. I am the man. Now out of curiosity I had a look on the web to see if there was any information about the recovery of sight after being born blind. And back in 2006 there was an article by some researchers at the Massachusetts Institute titled Vision Following Extended Congenital Blindness. It was a report about a 32 year old woman who had had congenital cataracts, that is an opaque lens at birth and those had been removed when she was 12. And at one level it was 
quite encouraging. 20 years later, she had not bad functional sight. But that report, and, and there aren't many of them over the years, there's another article that surveys 30 reports over a thousand years of intervention to bring sight to the congenitally blind. That's not a lot. Uh, but that report also brought out Jesus' action and how great it is. You see, that poor girl had lost the sight of one eye in the operation. And now she had to wear extremely thick glasses, which still left her very short-sighted. And she'd taken several months after the operation to be able to recognise common household objects and the faces of her family. She'd actually needed an extended period of learning. And in unfamiliar places, she still had to ask strangers for help and direction. Contrast that with this man born blind. Jesus heals him and he comes back seeing well straight away. Jesus brings sight to the blind, light into the darkness. Now, as you can imagine, such a work created quite a stir and curiosity about what had happened. Because John wants us to understand that this healing is a sign, something that points beyond itself to something greater, in this case, that points beyond itself to show us who Jesus is and what he does. John traces out for us in the rest of the chapter two responses to Jesus bringing sight to the blind, light into darkness. Let's look at the first response, that of the local religious authorities, the Pharisees. They bring the man to the Pharisees and it says it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes so the Pharisees asked him again how he had received his sight. Now, as you heard as the chapter was being read, these very religious men moved from some initial doubt in their attitude to Jesus in verse 16 to united certainty, verse 24, that this man is a sinner and then complete rejection in verse 34 of any who would challenge their judgment on Jesus. It's worth thinking about the way they respond to the evidence about Jesus at the reasons they give for turning their back on his life because, well, maybe you share their reasoning or perhaps you've encountered it. Now, we see the first of their reasons here in verse 16. This man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. They're saying Jesus just doesn't live up to our standards of right and wrong. Kneading, that is mixing things together, in this case saliva and dirt, was one of the 39 things expressly forbidden on the Sabbath. And, and they are saying that, well, we know. We know what pleases God and what doesn't. We're in a position to determine right and wrong, and Jesus just doesn't measure up. People do the same thing today, don't they? They apply their predetermined test to Jesus and find him wanting. A genuinely spiritual man, they say, or a genuinely good man wouldn't say, speak of judgment and hell, of which Jesus does speak, or wouldn't say he was the only way to God, or that people who disagreed with him would be judged and condemned, or he wouldn't have made all the apostles male, or, well, there are lots of tests, and the outcome of them all is the same. We can't recognise Jesus as the light, well, because he doesn't meet our standards. And we know our standards are absolutely right. Because they know they are right, 
They then employ a second strategy to avoid recognising Jesus, and that is challenge the evidence. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son? You see, these Pharisees have plainly learned from past experience that this is the kind of thing, you know, being born blind and having your sight restored, that people lie about routinely or get confused about every day. See, other people, unlike them, can't be trusted to be able to speak truthfully and accurately about what's happened in their lives. And getting, well, the truth from his parents, they then create an atmosphere that suppresses the truth. Verse 22, that make people fearful of talking to them about what they know of Jesus. And even if, as is this case, as in this case, the evidence can't be faulted. He really was born blind and he really does now see. Well, there's still another ploy for those determined not to believe who have already made up their minds. We see it in verse 26. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? This is the strategy. Never accept the explanation given. Always challenge the explanation given and insist on another. And why? Well, you know the one given can't be the right one. So you have to keep searching for one that fits what you know to be right. Jesus is a sinner. He's not from God. So he must have used magic. Tell us how he did it. Now you see people employing this strategy in relation to the resurrection. Because they know the explanation the apostles give for their experience that they believe in Jesus' resurrection because the living, risen Jesus convinced them, because they know that can't be true, well, they keep on asking for an explanation until they get the one that suits. And so the sceptics become wonderfully gullible and blame it all on magic mushrooms or on the belief that ancients who really had more experience of death than most of us made a mistake in this case and Jesus wasn't really dead. In fact, for them, any alternate explanation is preferable simply because they know the witness of the apostles can't be right. And if someone still persists in not telling you what you want to hear, well, what do you do? Verse 29, you invoke authority. We are just following Moses. And finally, when all else fails, Dismiss the messenger as either bad or mad. Verse 34, you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? If the evidence stacks up and the person speaking to you insists on drawing from it conclusions that make you uncomfortable and you know must be wrong, well, then he or she must be a bad person, morally incompetent a fool or somebody born with gullible believer's genes. Now, you see, the Pharisees can treat the evidence before them like this because they know they are right. They see things properly. They can't see the truth of Jesus because they won't see for they already know there is nothing to see. Convinced they're right? They won't listen to Jesus, who's already challenged them to see that Moses spoke of him. They won't listen to him as he has challenged their use in chapter, their use in chapter 7 of the Sabbath law to dismiss him. 
insisting they see, turning their back on the light, they've become blind, unable to see, enveloped in darkness. And that's a miserable place to be, isn't it? Here is a man born blind who sees, but there is no joy, just irritation. It's a miserable place to be in the darkness and it's a dangerous place to be. For when you've convinced yourself that the beloved son is a sinner, that one who's one sent to speak the truth of God is a liar and that light is darkness, where can you turn for sight? Now let me ask this morning, if you're not yet a believer in Jesus, are you open to the light? Let me give you a test. Are you copying the Pharisee's strategies when you meet the evidence for Jesus? Say, the evidence for Jesus' resurrection, that great vindication of his claim to speak the truth. So, for example, do you just dismiss the apostles' testimony because you know it can't happen? Or do you go on and challenge the evidence, refusing to believe the Gospels are eyewitness testimony despite the historical evidence? Perhaps you find yourself creating an intimidatory atmosphere in your home or workplace so that people won't talk to you about Jesus. Or maybe you're one of those who insist on the alternate explanations for the apostles' experience, no matter how implausible they are. And, and you invoke the authorities. How many noble laureates are Christians, you say? You invoke the authorities as a substitute for really grappling with the evidence and come really in your heart to brand all Christians as irrational. Well, let me ask you, could it be that you are not convinced by the evidence because you don't want to be convinced by the evidence? Are you open to the light? Well, it's the blind man's witness to what has happened to him and his growing insight into what it means that shows up the Pharisees' reasons for what they are, excuses to bolster their determination not to acknowledge the son. So let's look at the blind man's response. While he's clear, verse 11, about what has happened to him, he starts off, as we see in verse 12, really not knowing much about Jesus. He's just the man called Jesus, whose whereabouts he doesn't know. But as he's pushed by the Pharisees to explain how he has come to see, his understanding of who Jesus is develops and strengthens. And so verse 17, they ask, what do you say about him? He says, he is a prophet, somebody sent from God. Of verse 25, he says, oh, I'm no theological teacher or scholar to enter into your debates, but I can be sure that he is powerful to act and his actions are good. Finally, in verses 30 to 33, we see that he expresses his conclusion about Jesus and wonder at the Pharisees' failure to believe, expresses that in a way that should lead them to change their minds. You see, the Pharisees, verse 29, have said of Jesus, we don't know where he comes from. So the blind man now points them to the obvious answer. He starts, verse 31, with a premise, a starting point they can all agree on. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshipper of God and does his will, God listens to him. 
And then verse 32, he follows with an observation they can't deny. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. It's true, there is, say, in the Old Testament, no record of this miracle, sight being restored to the blind, though Jesus does it commonly. But that starting point and that observation then lead to the conclusion, verse 33, a conclusion they ought to accept. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. That's the conclusion. Jesus has been telling the truth about himself. He is from God. Well, as we know at that point, they decide that the blind man's the problem and that they really can't answer that question the disciples asked at the beginning. Who sinned? You were steeped in sin at birth. So they say, we don't need to listen to you. And they remove him because this dramatic change in his life is now not a cause of thankfulness to God, but as I've said, unsettling and irritant. And the blind man finds, like many believers, that there is a cost to believing in Jesus, a cost in even entertaining the thought that Jesus could be telling the truth, where the guardians of the social consensus reject him. But the blind man's not left alone. It was Jesus, remember, who started all this. And Jesus now seeks him out. And the blind man's considered conclusion on his experience that Jesus is from God leads him now to true faith, to true sight, to live in reality, enlightened by the light of the world. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Do you believe in the Son of Man? And notice the blind man doesn't say, what are you talking about? No, he says, who is he? He's not asking for explanation, but identity. He understands the term. He's heard the prophet Daniel read in the synagogue. He just wants to know to whom it applies. But we might need a bit of explanation. Uh, the Son of Man was an exalted figure spoken of in Daniel 7, someone who was entrusted with authority, glory and sovereign power so that all peoples, nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And if you read Daniel 7, you'll see that with his coming, well, God's people come to know peace and safety, come to share in his reign. Now, Jesus has already used this term throughout the gospel to speak of himself, to speak of himself as, chapter 3, one who has come down from heaven, who reveals God from God. Oh, the one, chapter 5, who's been given authority over all to judge. Yes, the one, chapter 3 again, or chapter 8, who would be lifted up on the cross to save the one, chapter 6, who would give eternal life by giving his life. Who is he? Jesus replied, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. You have now seen him. What rich and powerful words for a man born blind. Jesus says, it's me. And the blind man sees in truth. 
He doesn't just see Jesus, the native of Nazareth, an upstart carpenter, the son of Galilean peasants. He doesn't just see Jesus, the itinerant teacher, a wandering miracle worker. He sees the Son of Man. I believe, Lord. Your work in my life, your seeking me out, has convinced me that you are the one you say you are. And he worships him. In John's Gospel, this man alone, of all the people who deal with Jesus, responds rightly to Jesus' reality. He sees one who is I am before Abraham. He sees the one to whom the Father has entrusted all judgment so that all may honour the Son even as they honour the Father. He sees Jesus and so responds rightly to Jesus' reality with worship. And why does he see? Well, it's because he let the sign speak. He followed where it pointed and he believed the word Jesus spoke to him. We see two very different responses to the light of the world in these verses. Responses not just to words, but to a mighty sign. And Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Jesus coming as light into the world works judgment, dividing humanity into the seeing and the blind because there is no neutrality possible when it comes to Jesus. Elsewhere, Jesus makes clear that he was not sent, did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. John 3, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Or again, Jesus speaking in John 12, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my word and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Jesus came to save. But judgment, judgment on those who turn from the light because they love darkness rather than light, who exclude themselves from salvation by rejecting the word Jesus speaks is an inevitable outcome of the coming of the light. It's inevitable because if you don't embrace the light, you remain in darkness. It's an inevitable outcome and it is a foreseen consequence of the coming of the sun. And as a foreseen consequence, it is also part of the purpose for which the Father sent the Son into the world. The Son comes to humble the human pride that thinks it can deal with God on its own terms. The pride of the creature that thinks that he or she can dictate to the Creator and escape his judgment on sin. The failure of all to respond to the light is not a failure in the purpose of God for his Son. Jesus coming as light into the world works judgment. 
And that's part of God's purpose. And the gospel of Jesus coming, the word that you're actually hearing today works judgment. For it is by his gospel that Jesus sheds his light abroad in the world today. So as you gather here listening, let me ask you, what is the judgment the gospel of Jesus is working in your life today? Are you the blind who see? Because you have come to confess Jesus as he is, the glorious Son of Man. That is, are you the blind who see because you've accepted Jesus' verdict on humanity, on yourself, the verdict we heard in John 8, that in sinning we are slaves to sin, in believing the devil's lies that God will not keep his word and that we can be like God, that we've been ensnared in death and darkness and that of ourselves we do not know God, and that all our knowing is directed by our belonging to the world, by our rejection of and disobedience to God. And so we are unable, unable to find God of ourselves, unable to judge God and have only judgment and eternal death await us. And having accepted this, confessed it is true of yourself, have you turned to Jesus, the Son sent into the world to be the light of the world, believed his word, the word he speaks of us and of himself, that he is, I am, come from the Father to save by his death, by being lifted up on the cross. And having believed his word, having had your eyes open to see his glory, do you abide in his word and by following him walk in the light of life? Is that you? Are you the blind brought to see by the gracious work of Jesus? Or are you still the seeing who are blind? That is, you reject Jesus' verdict on humanity. You say, that's not true of me. I'm not enslaved to sin or ensnared to death. You're confident you can find your own way without Jesus. Establish your own truth apart from accepting what God says of himself in his son. That you have your own light to guide you through and to life. So you don't need to listen to Jesus and depend on him. At the end of our passage, Jesus warns those who say they see, who trust in their own judgment, who think that what Jesus has said of humanity does not apply to them. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And in the way they ask that question, they are clear that they expect the answer no. But Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. That is, if you could recognise your blindness, you would not stay in sin. But now that you say, we see your guilt, and the word's actually sin, your sin remains, your sinfulness remains. See, Jesus warns them and us that, while they insist they can see that they are capable of making their own judgments about right and wrong without reference to God, they remain in their sin, they abide in their sinfulness, turning their back on the light, rejecting Jesus' word, leaves them only in darkness, a darkness from which they cannot free themselves, for Jesus is the light, the only light of the world. His warning to them is a plea to change, to abandon their confidence, your confidence in your own judgment because no one is in more danger 
than the blind man who thinks he can see, than the blind who are blind because they have turned their back already on the light. What is the judgment? The coming of Jesus to you in his gospel is working in your life. There is no neutrality. You are either coming to see by trusting Jesus or moving further into the darkness and Jesus is the son of the living God, the creator of all. You cannot avoid him. There is no neutrality. And if that sounds stark, unsettling, thinking perhaps if you're a believer that the gospel you share works the judgment of God, remember, it only does so because Jesus comes as light into a dark world where our whole race is already enslaved to the devil and his lies, to sin and death. Jesus alone is the light of the world, and light is good. And Jesus is graciously opening the eyes of the blind to let us see his glory. He came to save and is calling all to follow him and so know the light that brings life. Those who know their blindness can ask and he will give them sight. Though working the judgment of God on human pride, the gospel is good news, good news of light and life and gracious love. And as you think of your witness to the light of Jesus, if you're a believer, your witness to the light of Jesus in this dark world, well, think of this blind man. In the face of determined efforts to challenge what he said, to dismiss both him and his experience, what did he do? He just kept testifying to the truth, what he knew, that he could see now and Jesus had given him sight. He didn't have to win all the arguments or answer all the objections, just stay true. And Jesus didn't abandon him or the work he started in his life and as he listened to Jesus and trusted him, he kept growing in his understanding. Now isn't that the way forward for every one of us whose lives have been changed by Jesus, changed as we've believed in him? Every one of us who come to walk in his light by trusting him, who know that through trusting him we've been forgiven, have been given God's spirit, have been adopted as God's children. We just have to speak of what we know. We don't have to win all the arguments or deal with every objection. Just be true. And Jesus won't abandon the work he started in us even as we face opposition. And as we follow him, that is as we listen to him and keep trusting what he says, well Jesus says ours is the light of life. And ours is his light then to share. And as you speak of what Jesus has done, remember, the light is good. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we confess that your verdict on us and our race is true. Committing sin, we are enslaved to sin. Believing the devil's lie that we can be like you and that you won't keep your word. 
We have been ensnared in death and lies in the darkness. We thank you that you have sent Jesus as light into our world, the light of the world. And those of us who come to trust him, thank you and praise you for shedding his light abroad in our hearts, opening our eyes to see his glory, convicting us of the truth of his word of promise that he gives life. We pray, gracious Father, that like the blind man, we would be true to Jesus, true to what he has done for us, true to what we have come to know and experienced for ourselves. And we pray, gracious Father, that you would shed the light of your gospel abroad in our community, in our families, in our world, and that in your mercy we would be light to others as we know Jesus' light for ourselves and as we walk in the light of his word. Now we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.